It's hard to pinpoint a pinnacle moment in the Gospel of Matthew. There's, there's so many high points. And of course, perhaps the greatest one is would be the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's where our minds might go first as we think, what's the big event in the Gospels? And that would be true of all of them. But there are many other things as well. Uh, there are pinnacles in miracles, like the feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000 that we've just seen in the last couple weeks. Uh, there is the walking on water, uh, an event that first left the disciples gasping for breath in total fear. They thought they were seeing a ghost, but then left them worshiping and confessing that Jesus was the very Son of God. And uh, I thought about that a little bit yesterday as I was preparing. I don't think that we can choose just one pinnacle point in Matthew to highlight because they all have their own meanings, so to speak. They all have their own intentions. But when it comes to the experience of the disciples, their learning, after all, that's what disciples, discipleship is, their understanding, their walk from, from being humble young men, several of them fishermen, being called to follow a teacher to where Jesus will leave them as apostles of the church and ministers of the new covenant. When we think about their experience, how they progressed, I think that this passage perhaps before us today is one of the most significant. Just by way of thinking, there are significant and pinnacle moments in all of our lives, moments or seasons that transform our perspective. Um, my mind went back to the, the day in December of 2015 when I first held our baby Chloe. And I remember thinking in that moment, looking, looking into her eyes, that living, breathing little girl and thinking everything is different in a big way right now. And probably Lizzie had that thought long before because she had carried her in her womb for nine months. But for me as the doll father, that was it. The baby's real now, it's here. Everything's changed. I could almost tangibly feel my mindset being transformed. There are moments when things become undeniably real and fixed. Uh, perhaps you can think of a similar time, a, a move, a, a decision, a, a diagnosis, uh, uh, whatever it might be, where you can look back and say, I remember that is when things changed. Well, I think that this passage is one of those moments for the disciples, especially for Peter, but for all of them. So let's read Matthew 16, beginning in verse number 13 down through verse number 20. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed it unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged them to tell no one 
that he was the Christ. Let's pause here for prayer. The Lord would help us as we study this passage. Heavenly Father, we come to you today again with another amazing portion of of your word that you've given to us as a gift, as a revelation, as a message, Lord. And today I pray that as we look at it and read it and attempt to understand and digest it, Lord, that you would help us to see the magnitude of it and the wealth and the worth and also help us to apply it here in our daily lives. Lord, your word we've, we've read. You have the words of eternal life. We can go nowhere else. And so to you we come again today, longing for the truth. Lord, meet our desires even in this moment. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This moment in the disciples' lives was was a pinnacle and transformative because the disciples were called upon to answer one of the most important, perhaps, perhaps the most important question that Jesus ever asked them. You say more important than when he called them to follow him? Yes, I think so, because we know that at least one of them, Judas, answered the call to follow, but seemingly never came to this full realization, at least not before it was too late. Yes, this is the pinnacle question, the question that all of their learning was going toward. And we probably could say this is the pinnacle question that every worldview must answer, the question that every philosophy and dreamer must answer, the question that politicians and monarchs and influencers must answer eventually is who do you say that Jesus Christ is? The most important question the disciples were ever asked by Jesus was who do you say that I am? Everything else will rest upon the answer. If you have your bulletin, you'll see the outline on the back. If you'd like to follow along, we'll break this passage up into five quick points today. And first we see the question uh, in verses 13 through 15, or maybe better to understand it as questions because Jesus actually asks a series of two And we pick it up in verse 13. We read that Jesus and his disciples come into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, It's about 25 miles north of Galilee, uh, the base of Mount Hermon. Um, It's called Caesarea Philippi because it was part of the rulership of Philip after Herod the Great died. So he named it Caesarea to honor Caesar and Philippi to honor himself. And uh, this was an area that was known for idol worship, for pagan worship. This also was an area which was a source or a fountainhead for the Jordan River, which would flow down, of course, through Israel. And as we'll see in this passage, the conversation that was had here will be a source or a fountainhead for much to come in the kingdom of God. Jesus asked his disciples a plain but honest question. He says, who do men say that the Son of Man is? Or who do people say that I am? He had identified himself as the son of man. It's one of his favorite titles. Uh, we know it now to be messianic. And there might not have been total agreement on that in that day, but Jesus was saying, who do people say that I am? You can imagine, Peter, James, John, you've been around the people. Uh, 
You carried the baskets of food when, when I fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. You went around when I sent you out on mission, healing and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. You've mingled among those whom I've healed and delivered and restored. Tell me, what are they saying? Who do they say that I am? Now, the disciples answer honestly. Although, interestingly, they don't give any of the negative answers, even though we know that they were out there. Maybe that's because Jesus had heard the negative answers with his own ears from the Pharisees and the scribes. But regardless, they give the, the consensus. And to summarize it, they say, the people think you're one of the great prophets. No, it's not as simple as that. They say, some say John the Baptist, who was a prophet. He was dead at this time. So immediately the idea of, of, of supernatural is in people's thinking. After all, even Herod Antipas, remember, he, he sort of feared a resurrection of John after he had him beheaded for Herodias' sake. Some say you're, you're John the Baptist, but it went further than that. Some say Elijah. Again, a prophet and a dead one at that, but one who was indeed promised to come in Malachi chapter 4 before the great day of the Lord, that, that final coming of the Lord in judgment and in power. Again, this would have been a miraculous appearance, and Elijah would serve as the forerunner of the deliverer, but interestingly, he would not be the deliverer. We read on, some say, Jeremiah. We know Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, one who preached a message with seemingly no converts or even positive response. It was a message of warning, of doom, while the people went on their ways. And perhaps the people caught wind of, of Jesus' warnings about how it would be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah or Tyre and Sidon than for some of their cities on the Day of Judgment. Maybe that brought images of Jeremiah to mind. Again, a great prophet, but not the Messiah. And then they just summarize one of the prophets, any of the rest of them, prophets who predicted the end, who predicted restoration, who predicted both judgment and hope, who predicted the coming of the Redeemer, of the Messiah. But one of the prophets was not the Messiah. This variety of answers was positive. Seemingly much of Israel had a, a positive view of Jesus. And how could they not? After all, he, he healed their sick. He fed them. He cast out their demons. He generally left uh, them with a better quality of life everywhere he went. But all of the answers fell short of what Jesus was looking for, of, of the truth. You see, each one of these answers, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, each one of these answers, if true, would have left the people still looking for another, still looking for one to come. John the Baptist proclaimed the coming of the Messiah, but he was not. Elijah would come before the Lord, but the Lord he was not. Jeremiah and the prophets spoke truth and told of redemption, but they were not the redeemers. Every positive opinion shared about who Jesus was would leave them still waiting, still yearning. 
And so it is with every answer to this question, even in our day, which falls short of what we are soon to see in this passage. Everything short of the truth about who Jesus truly is would leave us lacking and needing more, looking for something else. So Jesus follows it up. Surely as a teacher, he, he intended it this way. He, he may have intended to hear the, the short answers, the inadequate answers, to set up his disciples for their response. And if he did mean it that way, it surely sets up the answer uh, in a beautiful way. It sets it on a backdrop that really makes it shine. But as we read the answer, when Peter replies, we find that it really doesn't need anything to help it shine. No, this answer is a, a pinnacle moment of learning, of discovery, of revelation. And we read in verse number 16, after he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Matthew gives Peter's full name here. Uh, it's almost like he's, he's building up the grandeur of the moment as he remembers it. We often see Peter as the first to speak, as a, as a leader, as a spokesman for the group, sometimes good, oftentimes not so good. Nevertheless, by his nature and personality, there probably is some validity to the idea that he was a spokesman and here he's kind of given that place of recognition. It's almost like we see the disciples had had this conversation before, maybe after the walking on the water when they admitted that he was the son of God, maybe after the feedings when they saw him give bread from heaven, bread from himself, maybe after hearing him give the Pharisees and Sadducees that sign of the prophet Jonah, where he predicted that he would die and rise again. Whatever it is, Peter speaks up for the whole group and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When Jesus called the disciples, they knew there was something different about him, but they probably weren't entirely sure. When he gave the Sermon on the Mount, they knew he taught with unique authority but in their minds, they still didn't know exactly who this guy was. When they saw his miracles and healings, they knew that they were seeing God's power, but they may have still been hesitant. Even John the Baptist, while in prison, remember, had moments of doubt. He sent his followers to ask, are you the one to come or should we wait? But now they had come to understand they had come to realize, they had come to believe and to know that Jesus, their Lord, their master, their rabbi was more than a teacher, more than a master, more than a healer, more than a leader, more than a politician, more than the son of Joseph and Mary. Yes, he was the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ, of course, is the Greek transliteration or, or translation rather of the word for Messiah, the anointed one. And we don't see that totally explicit in the Old Testament. It's certainly hinted at, 
But by Jesus' day, the pieces were put together in that they were waiting for one, a redeemer, a restorer, a, a human who would come to deliver them, to restore the former glory of Israel, and that person was known as the Messiah. Now, perhaps in the people's minds, they were thinking more along the lines of a, of a political Messiah. And maybe that's why everyone with a positive view of Jesus thought that he was the forerunner, but not the actual deliverer. He seemed to shy away from the political part of it. He didn't carry a sword. After all, once when they tried to make him king by force, he left them as quickly as he could. When he had interactions with the Pharisees and scribes and they gave him a lot of grief, he didn't challenge them for their positions. Rather, he would leave them alone and shake his head. So maybe people thought Jesus was the spiritual forerunner, the one to prepare the people's hearts for the deliverer, but not the deliverer himself. But as we know, that's not why Jesus came. His kingdom, as he will later say to Pontius Pilate, was not of this world. The real work was the spiritual work. Real deliverance was the deliverance yet to come in the crucifixion, in the resurrection. The real redemption was not that of, of a political nation, but to redeem a whole group of people from every nation. The disciples, though still growing in their understanding of all this, had come to accept that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, even though the details didn't fit the expectations. Now, it's not that the details didn't fit the prophecies. You should be careful to note that. It did fit the prophecies. But the expectations in people's minds looked for the total future, when all evil would be eradicated. That will be Jesus' work as well. It's simply yet to come. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ the son of the living God. The idea of, of a, a redeemer as God's son is clear in the Old Testament. We could look at many passages, but Psalm 2 is maybe the uh, simple one we could go to. Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There's that idea of Messiah, an anointed one. Uh, down in verse 7 of Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, that is, Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verses 11 and 12 in Psalm 2, say, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, the blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in Psalm 2, we see the idea of this anointed one, a son of God who is a redeemer and who is equally to be feared and reverenced as Yahweh himself. And blessed, it says, are all who take refuge in him. This is who the disciples are, are, are beginning to see Jesus as, that deliverer, that redeemer, that judge, 
the blessed one and the blessing one. Who do you say that Jesus is? It makes all the difference. It truly does matter. A high opinion of Jesus may fall short if you've not come to see him as who we read he is here, as the God-man, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Lord, the Ruler, the Redeemer, the Blessed, and the Blessing One. Well, we move then to verse 17, and we see a blessing. And it's interesting to read verse 17 after you read the end of Psalm 2, for it says, Blessed are all those who find refuge in him. And Jesus' first words of response to Peter are, you are blessed. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This blessing given to Peter reflects the blessings that we saw in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. We can't recount them all, but think of it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Peter couldn't offer this truth out of his own riches. Blessed are the meek. Peter couldn't boast in his own flesh or in his own thinking that he he conjured up this answer. Blessed are the hungry. Peter was fed with this bread of truth from the Father in heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart. Peter's response was the the unadulterated truth that came from God himself into the heart of Peter, and out of the overflow of Peter's heart, he spoke. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Again, we see a, a full title of Peter. This is a monumental moment. Also, Jesus is going to indicate a change in name for Peter in a couple verses. So it's interesting that he he gives him his, his full heritage, so to speak. Simon, son of Jonah, blessed are you, for flesh and blood have not revealed it to you. Could paraphrase, Simon, do you understand how wonderful this is? You're a smart guy, Peter, but your reasoning didn't give you this answer. You had all the same evidence as everyone else, but your answer is different. Why is that? Because my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. And even in speaking that way, Jesus gives approval and credence to the answer. He says, yes, Peter, you're right. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, as a side note, this blessing is is true of us as well, isn't it? None of us are believers in Christ because we've conjured up the right answer in our minds. None of us have come to deem him as the redeemer and the deliverer and the blessed and blessing one because of our own reasoning. No, it's, it's not to say that our minds are irrelevant or they're not working in that, but rather that the Lord has captivated and renewed our minds to be able to know, opened our eyes to be able to see. And if you are a believer in Jesus, blessed are you, brother and sister, for flesh and blood have not revealed it to you, but our Father who is in heaven. And you are truly blessed. We'll go to verse 18. 
and we see a promise. I tell you, Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I have to admit that this verse and the one to follow have provided a fair amount of controversy over the years, particularly having to do with, with the, the argument of how significant Peter's role is or was and is. Some have taken this verse to mean that Peter is the rock on which the church is built and Peter and his successors would be the perpetual fountainhead of truth what the church is continually based upon. And my intention is not to spend time refuting that other than to say that we don't see that anywhere else in scripture. We don't see anywhere where Peter has a official successors that, that uh, act in the, the role of a pope or a, a chief bishop. Uh, Peter was never self-consciously a leader of that sort. And nowhere do we see an expectation that other leaders would follow and take his role as the one guy on earth who's sort of in charge of the church. Well, on the other hand, though, some have gone to great lengths and taken any place of blessing away from Peter here. Jesus says to Simon, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter. And he uses the word Petros. It's it's the masculine form of the word for rock. He gives him that name. You are Petros. You are Peter. And upon this Petra, which is the normal word for rock, I will build my church. Now, what is significant here that makes this statement meaningful? What has changed? What has changed or what has come about is this faith and confession, which did not come from Peter, which came from the Father himself, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's place in this transaction is as a faithful mouthpiece to what God had given him. He was blessed because of what God had given him. Much like Mary the mother of Jesus was blessed, not because of, of her achievements, but rather because God chose her to act in that role. So Peter is blessed and highly favored because God had given him this truth and allowed him to speak it. The rock then is not Peter as Peter, but Peter is great confession, this great faith, which is truly a work of God and the idea that it is a work of God continues because Jesus says, upon this, I will build my church. Continually, upon this great confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus would build and build and build. It would continue to be the Lord's work, not focused on Peter. Peter would be a mouthpiece. We're going to see some examples of that in a moment. But the work would always be Christ's. The building would always be Christ's. And what would he build? Well, he says, I will build my church. I will build my church. 
the word is, is ecclesia. It's the first time we see it in the New Testament. It's one of only two times we see it in the Gospels, both in Matthew. Now, at this point, we can't read into it every detail of, of the New Testament church with elders and deacons and structure and the Lord's Supper and meetings. That hasn't all been revealed yet. But to take it in its plainest sense, it's a gathering, an assembly. In the secular usage, it was kind of like a town meeting, a societal gathering. In the Old Testament, when that was translated into Greek, this word was often used to refer to the assembly of God's people, the gathered people of God. So Jesus says, I will build my assembly of people, and I will build them upon a new and unique understanding that I am the Messiah, the son of the living God. That is the great promise that Christ is building his church, which means as an assembly, he is bringing people to that same place of understanding and faith that Peter was brought to. It's important to note that in the rest of the New Testament, the foundational rock of the church is always seen as Christ not Peter himself. Even Peter himself as that mouthpiece would speak in 1 Peter 2 and say this, you have come to him, a living stone, the speaking of Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in scripture. And then he quotes, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus is that cornerstone rejected by men, but adored and revered by those chosen of God. And we are being built as a spiritual house, a house made of believers, a building made of people, a church, which is not just this structure, but an assembly of those both here and across the world, across eternity, whom Christ has bought and brought to himself. This is the promise. I will build my church. And it comes along with another, that the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Hades, which is the word there, was known broadly as the place of the dead. The power of death, the place of death, will not be able to overpower or overcome Christ's work of building the church. This would be seen first in the resurrection of Jesus himself. It would be seen in the resurrection of those to come at the end of the age. And it will be seen for all eternity as death is no more in the new heaven and the new earth. Dear one, we should constantly be setting our hope on Christ as the builder of his church. Constantly be praying, Lord, build your church. Bring people here and abroad to have this kind of faith and hope, this kind of realization like Peter had 
that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Quickly, we move on to, to verse 19 where promises continue. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what do keys do? They lock and they unlock. And in this case, it's the kingdom. We have already seen that Christ will be building up his people in a new and unique way on the confession that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah. So how is it that Peter, and as we'll see later in Matthew, the rest of the apostles are given these keys? We see it in many ways, but in the book of Acts, we see it as the apostles bringing this truth to people both Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, and the kingdom is opened up to them. Matt read in the, in the middle of our worship service from Acts 2, Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And we won't read the rest of the whole thing, but the end of it says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And we read that after giving the gospel again and telling them clearly to repent and be baptized, in verse 41, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So we could say on the day of Pentecost, the kingdom was opened up to about 3,000 Jews to enter based on this message that Jesus was the Christ. Another example in Acts 8, there was a man named Simon, the magician in the city. And he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Here, the gate of the kingdom was opened up to the Samaritans as the message of the kingdom had power even over this amazing magician named Simon. And later in that passage, we read that even this Simon believed and the keys unlocked the kingdom of that to them as well. we'll spare many of the details for sake of time, but in Acts 10, we read of Peter's vision, if you remember, of foods that were formerly called unclean, being made clean. And that was true, but it was also a metaphor for the fact that the Lord was about to open up the kingdom to the Gentiles as well when Cornelius, a Roman centurion, believed in Jesus. And after these events, Peter in Acts 10.34 opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. And later in verse 43, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him 
receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Through the apostles, and Peter was present or involved in all of those cases, the kingdom was, was unlocked and opened to the believing Jews, to the Samaritans, and to the Gentiles, just as Jesus promised in the end of Matthew. The last part of the promise here in verse number 19 has to do with, with recognizing those who are part of this church and the kingdom and those who aren't. Now, we're going to come to this very same idea in Matthew 18. So we'll leave it a little bit bald for today, if you will. But in short, Jesus is saying that in the church, you will be able to recognize who is in and who is out. And Jesus even charges the leaders to make that declaration based on the reality that is true in heaven. He says, whatever you bind shall be bound, and whatever you loose shall be loosed. Uh, another way of, of translating that, and it's a little bit stilted, it doesn't sound very good in English, but an accurate way of reading that is whatever you bind will have been bound. Whatever you loose will have been loosed. In other words, the reality of the kingdom and the body of Christ that's true on earth is true in heaven as well. And we'll see more about what that means in Matthew 18. It has a lot to do with, with what we've come to know as, as church discipline. So I'll just whet your appetite for that and come back in a few weeks and hear more on that. But regardless, Jesus is introducing a whole new understanding of the people of God. They would be a people, a gathering, a church, as we say, based on the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Entrance into this kingdom would not be based on history or family, but on that rock and confession. There would be a reality of those who are in and who are not, and this truth is not just here on earth. It's true in heaven as well. And all this begs us to ask the question, do you see why it's so important to know who Jesus truly is? It's important for more than just an identity of the Son of Man. It's important because the answer determines everything else to come. Christ is the one who builds his church. Christ is the one who gives the right to enter into the kingdom. Christ is the one who secures that kingdom for all eternity. Who do you say that Jesus is? Finally, in verse number 20, we'll close quickly, we see a charge. He strictly, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It was not yet time to tell people this great truth. You could speculate a lot of reasons. We're not told. I think, based on what's to come, I think it's because Jesus knew that the fullness of the work of the Messiah had not taken place yet. People had already tried to make Jesus king by force. If they caught wind that, that he was the Messiah, then people might have been looking for armies and uprisings. They may have been emboldened to start riots and revolts to overthrow the Roman government. No, they were not to know that he was the Christ until his work was accomplished a work that would in, 
involve conquering, but not of Rome, a work that would include bloodshed, but not of his enemies, a work that would include death even, but not the death of an empire. The people were soon to see him as Messiah, but not yet, not until they could see him as the suffering Messiah, the one that Isaiah had promised. And for this reason, the disciples, though armed with this great knowledge and revelation and and filled, no doubt, with questions and anticipation about this new understanding of God's people, they were to tell nobody. And that's where we'll leave it for this morning, and we'll pick it up there next time. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this great truth. Lord Jesus, that you are, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That you have been building your assembly with bricks made of flesh and bone and breath. People, Lord, person by person from that very first opening sermon by Peter at Pentecost to even now where believers are coming to know you each day. You are building your church and the gates of hell, the power of death did not prevail against you, will not prevail against your people. Lord, may we trust you. And armed with this truth, may we spread it. And the hope and the importance of this question, who do you think Jesus is? Would you use us as a mouthpiece to ask the question, perhaps to help to see the answer, Lord, but all the while knowing you're the one doing the work? May we pray and rely and be faithful and patient as you reveal yourself all around the globe and even in this place. And we give you glory, Lord, for every every brick placed upon the assembly of your people, every person brought near. Help us to trust you as you've unlocked the doors to the kingdom uh, with the gospel message going out that opens it up to Jew and Gentile alike, Lord, Help us to trust you that you know the time and the place where each one should come in. May we be sensitive to follow you when you give us an opportunity to speak and to love and to show. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.